Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome to the Mark Rose Podcast. You know, for me, one of the greatest challenges in my life hasn't been relational, so to speak, with other so much as it has been speaking my authentic truth at the fear of how it will be received. And even just sharing my feelings and my thoughts, thinking that somehow how they're received determines their validation and how I'm received determines my worth and validation. And being able to differentiate what is biologically conditioned, you know, for the desire to belong versus what is just based on past experiences where someone didn't accept us for who we are or what we thought or our feelings were denied or, you know, whatever it is, our expression was suppressed by a teacher, a parent, friends, whatever it is. And, you know, it's being able to recognize that as a survival strategy when you're young is important so that you feel like you belong but it's this interesting paradox because you belong at the cost of self, just like you can be in the relationship at the cost of self, but you're in a relationship. So you could be doing, quote unquote, everything right and checking off all the things on the list and being everything you were taught to be and still be completely miserable, completely unhappy, completely unfulfilled. And, you know, I think for me, this was recognizing I guess what was sort of, as I think about it, you know, what was, I certainly was happy. I certainly had joy. I certainly enjoyed life. But I don't think I felt it all. I didn't taste it all. I wasn't fully present. I think in achieving those things on the list, you start to see that they're not necessarily what you want, which isn't to say that, you know, they can be sometimes. You know, of course, like, you might have loved to become an accountant and that was exactly what you were taught to become or a doctor or whatever it is. 
I think it's important, though, to start to differentiate, is that true? Is that true of our essence? And again, not to invalidate it if it is. It's, it, for me, it was peeling away what was actually important versus what, what I was taught was important. What would get me belonging versus what would f- make me feel like I belong within my own body, within my own self. For me, the greatest challenge for that was transitioning from being in a career that was really I was quite successful. I had a good salary. I had a you know secure job, good place in the company, well liked, you know, at least I think <laughs> in the company. Had room to grow if I wanted to and and being able to recognize that I had all that and it wasn't enough. Like I had this desire to speak and convert to speak and converse about relationships and you know starting that out was terrifying. So terrifying and and even what does our relationship to creativity and our voice actually look like? Like I remember speaking to George Carlin's daughter, Kelly Carlin, and this was be- right before I started. And I said, how did you find your voice? And she said, I found my voice by using it. And I think of that line often, that what you want to say today will change. And so you are not a static thing. You're not a static identity. You're not a static being. And I think relationally, this is very evident where we maybe enter relationship uh, at any time in our life, but let's say we enter it young, that often our relationships are built on the premise that we stay the same, that we, our values don't change, that, that we are, you're not the same as you used to be. It's like, you're damn right I'm not. Like life's happened. It's shaped me. I've discovered what's important to me and I'm changing. And the relationship needs to change to hold the capacity and expansion of both people. And if it can't, it needs to either fall away or grow. And I think that's true for the masks we wear, the identities we wear. And so it's kind of like, yeah, relationally, those haven't been my biggest challenges. But the challenges I've had relationally are a direct reflection of the challenges I've had personally, which is my relationships, maybe not based on my true authentic feelings, desires, or who I actually am, uh, is and not expressing everything I want, need, and feel is because of not being able to do that within myself. And so the relationship suffers because I'm suffering. Do you see that? How it's all so correlated? And so the birth of you is the birth and invitation to different things relationally. Again, it sounds like it's all about relationship, but it's not. You know, it always comes back to know thyself, get to know you, be compassionate with yourself. You know, one of the greatest teachers I had in beginning my journey and continuing it and continue to go back to his teachings and his knowledge because they're forever changing too, because he's always sharing new insights. You might know his name. He is a master in the area of marketing and human behavior, and he is world-renowned. And today I have the pleasure of sharing with you an interview I did with him. Where I got to tell you, I don't often get nervous in interviews, but I was definitely nervous in the first part of this one. And, you know, I remember a boss of mine said to me, I love seeing when you're nervous. And I was like, why would you want me to be nervous? That's ridiculous. And he was like, because it means you care. And that has really reframed nervousness for me, that it means I care about what I'm doing. And that couldn't be more true in this interview with the amazing, world-renowned Seth Godin. And so if you don't know his work, you're about to have your mind blown. He's 
got 20 worldwide best-selling books. Oh my gosh, he has a podcast called Akimbo. He has another podcast that is not running anymore, but it's still available, which is a recording of a weekend uh, workshop that he did with with people about starting their own businesses and running their own businesses. Both his podcasts are exceptional, especially the one that's ongoing called Akimbo. And he also has a program called the Alt-MBA, which is brilliant and amazing. And he has lots of TED Talks. Most people don't even get to have one TED Talk. He has lots of TED Talks. I believe he has three, which is just bananas. But that shows you the wealth of knowledge and wisdom that he has. So, you know, it's great. It's with such great pleasure that I share this episode with you. I can't wait to hear how it affects your relationship to your creativity, to the inner critic, to imposter syndrome, to all the things that scare us away from actually doing the beautiful creative work. Before we hop right in, wherever you listen to this, please leave it a five-star review and a written review and make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you get every episode. And yeah, please share this if it resonates with you and tag me on Instagram. And I hope you have the most beautiful day. Enjoy. Seth Godin. I've enjoyed your work for all the years that I've been introduced to it, probably about eight years. I found you, you know, as they say, when the student's ready, the teacher arrives. And that certainly was true in my experience and your most recent book, which I've loved. And it's the process and shipping creative work. And in consuming it, I I felt like you were giving words or uh, calm to everyone's greatest fears in the creative process, but also some really beautiful call-outs. So you did a really good job. So I, I love it. I appreciate that. Yeah, so I'm curious, uh, what inspired you to write this? Because this is book 19, right? I think it's 19. It's the 20th bestseller. There were 120 books before that, but we don't count those. Yeah, I um, like to hear that. The uh, tactical race on the web to get the TLDR, to, to get the hustle, the hype, the shortcut, it's exhausting and it doesn't work. And here we are able with more leverage than ever before to do creative work that we're proud of in every field, whether you're a veterinarian or a bass player. And everyone's trying to get to the end and to win the race and have a hustle. And I looked at the pain that that's causing people. And I said, what if, if once you see it, you can't unsee it. And what you need to see is that it's actually about having a practice and it's actually about the journey itself and that hustling for a shortcut doesn't ever get you what you want. And that each of us is capable of doing important creative work if we only cared enough to do so. And so that's why I wrote a book about it. Yeah. And so why the title, like the shipping creative work, I was curious about that. I mean, I've read it, so I understand it, but for the people listening, Well, the subtitle has three words in it, Uh, shipping, because if you don't ship, it doesn't count. If it's in your head, it doesn't count. If you're dreaming about it, it doesn't count. You have to put it into the world. And creative, because creative is what we call it when we do something that might not work, something human, something real, something in this moment that solves this problem. And work, because it's not your hobby. You should have a hobby. I love hobbies. Uh, Our mutual friend, Steph Corker, is a great skate skier. But the day she decides to try to make money from skate skiing, she will ruin it because that would make it work. Work is what happens when we make a promise to somebody else that we're gonna show up as we said we would to solve their problem. And so 
what I'm arguing is if you're not shipping creative work, then you're on your way to being replaced, to becoming a cog, to being ignored and disrespected. So the way forward is to commit to shipping creative work. Well, one of the things you, I mean, you started out the book with uh, some real zingers and you started with that. The quote that just hit me right away was the magic of the creative process is that there is no magic. And I love that. So can you speak more to that? Thank you to Thelonious Monk, who also wrote a best-selling book on how to toilet train your cat, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> if you're looking for the magic and you're waiting for talent and for the uh, flying spaghetti monster to reach out with his newly appendage and bless you and say, you have the magic, you will be waiting for a long time. And what you're actually doing is hiding that the actual magic of the creative process is a practice, is showing up doing work that doesn't work on your way to doing work that does. And that seems to be a a challenge for everybody who wants to start that stuff, you know, who are like, oh, I'm ready to start, but what happens if it's not consumed? What happens? Like, I I feel like so many people, at least in my experience being, you know, having people ask me like, how do I begin? How do I there? It's like, just begin, just start. But how do you, because you do such a good job of eloquently explaining, you know, all the objections that come up in the human psyche of why I shouldn't begin, why I shouldn't step into my truth. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. Uh, Well, first, I am the first person to tell you, I don't cover nearly all of the objections. There's so many of them. (laughs) We're creative as humans. But I also believe that it is impossible to step into your truth because I don't think you have one. You know, we were just in a call with people who are thinking of taking the podcasting workshop from uh, Akimbo, the company that I started a while ago. And basically the question is, well, how will I know if I start a podcast that it will be as popular as Mark Maron's? Mm-hmm. And not only the isn't, isn't the answer you can, uh, the answer is actually you probably won't. And also worth noting is that when he started his podcast, he had 10 listeners. Mm-hmm. And every podcast begins with 10 listeners, every single one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we have a truth, I'm hoping it's not so specific that it's tied to a particular technological platform or a new form of media, right? I'm pretty sure if Vincent van Gogh were alive today, he would not be painting in oil paintings. What we have is an opportunity, an opportunity to be generous, to contribute, to show up, do work that we're proud of. And the form that work takes doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter for a bunch of years, I was the most successful uh, canoeing instructor in all of Canada. And people would say to me, uh, oh, you must really love canoeing. I'm like, no, not that much. <laughs> I just like teaching. And this was a handy vehicle to do that. And so I think we got to give ourselves a break and not have it be bogged down with this is my truth. I better not blow it. As opposed, the alternative, I think, is to just say, Here's a chance to make something better. Maybe I'll do that. Yeah, because you speak to finding our voice, you know, and and what that even looks like. And I love what you said that we don't have like a specific truth, but the path to actually finding your voice through the creative process. And you had a line that was about, it's easier to develop an identity when you don't have to walk away from one you've already developed. And that hit me right in the soul because I just thought how many of us are, it's easy to do when you're a child. 
to, as you were, you were talking through the process of young people, you know, seven to 10 becoming musical geniuses because they started at that window. And that being this, uh, you know, we're free from at least a, a sort of uh, cemented identity at that point. We're maybe cementing an identity often. So I'd love you to share more about that. It was really interesting. Well, the first thing to mention is that sunk costs are the bane of the human existence. Human beings get hooked on something they did yesterday and believe that they have an obligation to honor the effort it took to do that thing when we don't. And we can talk about that some more. Um, but you know, the other half of it, uh, my teacher and friend Zig Ziglar used to tell a story about needing to make a sales call on somebody. And after he made the call on this very influential person in town, the guy was sold. And then he turned to Zig and he said, but Mr. Ziegler, what will I tell my friends? And the reason he didn't want to buy the cookware wasn't because he didn't want the cookware. It was because he was going to be embarrassed to tell people he changed his mind. Mm. And in our super fraught political culture, that keeps people stuck. What will I tell my friends? And Zig's answer was great. His answer was, well, why don't you tell them that you care so much about your wife and kids that when you learned what this cookware could do, you realized that your pride wasn't nearly as important as taking care of your family. And when we get stuck into, you know, I'm a novelist, I'm a novelist, I'm a novelist. Oh, I think I should start a podcast. It's okay to say to people, I gave being a novelist a really good try, but based on what I know right now, being a podcast is the best way for me to contribute. Well, to think that I feel the resonance in that as someone who has content on multiple platforms, you know, you start to feel like a dream you had or what was a passionate pursuit shifts. And there is, at least in me, a resistance to let go of what was, you know, sure. to fully say, oh, maybe the actual path is this other path. And I think, you know, we're current, we're definitely in a time when people are losing their jobs. You know, there's an opportunity in that to pursue passions and to let go, you know, in, in so much of our challenges going against what other people taught us is right. And, and also when you're starting, I found this when I was starting to talk about relationships and human connection, you know, facing the criticism of the people who are used to who you were and how do you face that? How do you, uh, how do you go towards that? And still, you know, because I think innately within us is this desire to belong, Right. And in the face of not belonging, but belonging to yourself, you know, it's it's a big jump. It's a big leap. If you were walking by the shore of Joe Lake and uh, a four year old was drowning, I'm guessing you would jump in, even if you were wearing brand new grubs uh, and your, you know, your, your go to market clothes. Because while it might be an inconvenience for you and for all the people, you'd have to explain why you jumped in the water in that moment, your generosity and care requires you to put that aside and do what needs to be done. That's not easy. The water is cold. It might not work. Your effort to save that kid might not pay off. You might uh, hurt the feelings of the person you were going to meet at the Portage store. All of these things could happen. You don't hesitate. You jump in the water. And if you want to run, you're going to get tired if you want to run a marathon. Well, getting tired is part of the 
the gig. It's the main part of the gig. So don't complain when you're running the marathon that you're getting tired. That's the point. And so what you're saying is, if we choose to do creative work, all these social outcomes may occur that we weren't looking forward to. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying that's sort of the point. That is proof uh, that you're on the right path in some sense. Could be. Yeah. When you talk about uh, that, you don't read any of your Amazon reviews. Um, and, and you're, I was inspired by that because of course, uh, how, how does one become, you know, by not reading them, then you're not getting the criticism, which is good for the human system. Yeah. Speak more to that. No, 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 no. It is really important that we get useful, direct, constructive, non-anonymous feedback to make our work better. If you want to learn how to drive a car, you got to pay attention when you hit the curb so you don't hit the curb again. Feedback is critical. Mm-hmm. That is really different than a one-star review from an anonymous troll who the book wasn't even for. Because all that review is telling you is, you didn't write this book for me. Okay. You, I've learned nothing, nothing from that. And so the mistake we make is being drawn to places that will put us into a box, tricking ourselves into thinking we're being a brave, hearty soul, when actually what we're doing is looking for an excuse to hide out. And go find good critics, start a circle of useful critics, criticize each other face to face in a really useful way. But don't go into the public sphere saying, here's my face, would someone please punch me? Because that's just not going to help your work. Yeah, it's not going to help your creative process. And I appreciate that delineation of useful criticism versus not. And you speak also to this idea of imposter syndrome. And I I know for me, that's, uh, you know, from the beginning, you know, I sort of faced that fear, faced what was occurring. And I hear that all the time of, of that being the main reason people don't start, whether spoken or not. So can you share how we face that, what that means? And, and- Right. So... It turns out imposter syndrome was only named about 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, A lot of people think it only afflicts people like them, whether it's the country they're from or their born gender or whatever it is. Nah, everyone feels it. And then there's an argument uh, that there are things we can do to make that feeling go away. And my sort of controversial response is, you probably shouldn't because you are an imposter. At least I'm an imposter. Mm -hmm. I have no right to be talking about this topic. Mm -hmm. I have no proof that for you, it will work. And so if you don't feel like an imposter, it means you're not trying hard enough. If you're doing exactly what you did yesterday, making the same grilled cheese sandwich the same way every day, you're not trying hard enough. And if you are trying hard enough and you feel like an imposter, maybe you could say, thank you. Thanks for giving me the chance to reach outside my comfort zone to make things better for people. Because if we relish that feeling, then we know we might be onto something. So it's a sign of good work. The sign of brave work is what you're saying. That's what I think. I agree with that. I feel like uh, no matter what, as you grow and change, and as you know, you talked in your book about speaking on a new stage, talking about a new subject, doing, uh, you, you're expanding yourself. You're growing. And, you know, the idea that you're always going to be an imposter in a new room, there's always going to be a new place you've never been. Yep. And from a creative process, this idea of it being the space of like the practice of being in the day to day writing, even if it, because so many of the people I talk to are like, 
well, I want to start, how do I get a video to go viral? How do I get my writing to go viral? And I'm curious your opinion on that, because I'm sure you hear a lot of that from a marketing perspective. Yeah. I mean, if you want to have a safe land on your head, it helps to walk around downtown a lot. If you walk around downtown enough times, a safe is going to land on your head. But you got to be downtown walking past the buildings or it's not going to happen. And I know people who have made viral videos. I have never met anyone who can do it on the regular. No one, right? Jonah Peretti, super famous founder of BuzzFeed, has hit it a couple of times, not a hundred. There is no method because it has to be something that hasn't happened before. Otherwise, it wouldn't go viral. And I don't recommend anybody try to make a living going viral, just like I don't try recommend anybody try to end up in the hospital by having a safe fall on their head. Mm-hmm. It's too random. More people have a safe fall on their head percentage-wise than go viral. It's like getting hit by lightning. Don't try for that. Instead, seek out the smallest viable audience, earn their permission, show up on the regular, solve their problems, earn trust, earn trust, earn trust, bring consistent frequency to it. And suddenly you are doing meaningful work as opposed to waiting to win the lottery. And just, you know, one data point, I'm 7,700 blog posts into my blog and not one of my posts has gone viral, which is fine with me because everything in your life gets worse when that happens, not better. (laughs) So in the consistency of the practice, tell us more about that. What does that look like? Well, almost anyone who's listening to this has some practices. You brush your teeth in the morning and you regularly go to work even when you don't feel like it. There are things that we do out of habit. Some of those practices get in the way. You know, it's seven, eight o'clock at night. You sit down in front of your streaming machine and the next thing you know, it's midnight. And you do that night after night after night. Well, that's your practice because you're doing it on the regular. And if you're not happy with what you're getting, maybe it pays to change what you're doing. And if you canceled your streaming subscription and you put a time lock on your phone and you did morning pages and you started a mastermind group and you wrote a chapter for your book every week for 52 weeks and then published it at the end of the year, 12 months from now, you're going to be a different person than you are today because you picked a different practice, not because the world smiled at you. So in the consistency of doing that practice, the transformation occurs. Like the art, you're not creating the art so that the art sells or so that the art is. So when we detach from, because you spoke to that in your book, uh, this idea of like, you can't be attached to the outcome. Like it's the process. The process is where the whole um, magic is. And you spoke to emotion, like seeking an emotion. And I really loved it. Would you be able to explain that for us? Well, I'm really struck by what Chung Young Trump and Rinpoche said, which is we are falling and falling and falling. And the good news is there's nothing to hold on to. And the reason that that's so profound to me is in the movies, when a hero is falling and there are all those rungs, you know that they're going to grab a rung and be saved. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if there are no rungs, you have no choice but to enjoy the ride because there's nothing to strive for. And in the case of art, we have to be really clear about what it's for, who it's for, the change we seek to make. But we cannot spend cycles willing that person to get the joke, insisting that that person 
laugh. Because when we do that, we get out of ourselves. There's a tragic story of um, Steve Allen. Steve Allen was, before Johnny Carson, he was Johnny Carson. And he had a live show, late night TV. And what he used to do is he would come out at the beginning and ad lib and be a comic. And a few shows into it, he notices that there's a woman who's not applauding. And as opposed to doing his work, his craft for the people who he thought were there for him, he could not let go of this woman. And finally, he turned up the house lights and called her out. And it turns out she had been uh, born with a birth defect and she had no arms. Wow. And he never worked the audience again. But the key to that is he wasn't willing to be generous to the audience or to himself to give them the benefit of the doubt and stop trying to control them and instead get back to the practice of doing his best work, regardless of whether he can control one person. And it happened to me much less tragically about four years ago. I don't like giving, I love giving talks. I don't like traveling far and I don't like convention centers. Convention centers are designed to <laughs> sap the soul of every public speaker, as you know, as a public speaker. I agree speaker. with that, yeah. And <laughs> so here I am in Mexico, and there's simultaneous translation, which I also don't like, because everyone's on a delay. So if you say something funny, like seven seconds later, <laughs> triple whammy. <laughs> so I'm up there, and I'm trying my best. And there's a woman in the fourth row, and she's on her phone. But she's not listening. She's not texting. She's talking. She's oh, talking shit. on her phone in Spanish loudly. In your presentation. 3,000 people there. And I know it's not me because she was on the phone before I started, right? <laughs> and I spent the first six minutes of my talk aiming everything I had at her. I turned every one of my stories into a story about her and her phone. I was just coming back over and over again to attention and permission and compassion and nothing. And then finally I went like this. And I said, what about the other 2,999 people who are here for you? Mm-hmm. I can't control that woman. I need to stop. I need to get back to my practice and do my work. To do that in real time is like the ultimate form of mindfulness. Cause I know what you're saying, like speaking into an audience and like, Hey, that joke normally lands or that and seeing someone totally detached. Like I had two people in a talk talking in the front row loudly. And I remember the same thing. Like my consciousness was focused on this thing. So I wasn't present anymore, but so hard to bring it back, you know, to bring it back and what you're, so this idea of like, focus on the giving is what I'm hearing. It's like, focus on the that you're the conduit to this information and let who's not your person or not your fan or not your like don't do it for that one person do it for this collective yeah and if it comes from that space that seems to be a a different space than most businesses derive like most businesses derive to make a profit not necessarily which a profit's great but not necessarily from that soulful place well except that the punchline is the same. So Patagonia is one of the best performing companies, certainly in the apparel Mm -hmm. uh, industry. And yet their choices consistently and repeatedly are not about making a profit. Mm -hmm. 
They're about making a difference. And it turns out, what a coincidence. The harder they try to make a difference, the more money they make. Wow. And it turns out that uh, Miles Davis made a kind of blue in four days. And he wasn't worried about the A&R guy or the person at Tower Records or the radio station program director or which, what, you know, some middle of the road pretend jazz fan was going to think. He was doing the practice and multi, multi million records later, he does great. Whereas all those people who try to reverse engineer Kenny G, you never heard of them because <laughs> they're, they're trying to manipulate the market. They're not showing up with the work. Well, it seems to be so separate. And you speak to this, uh, I've heard you speak to this quite a few times, the requirement for us to detach from how we've been educated, like how we've been designed to think about our occupations. And so can you share a little bit about like what conditions us and and that that uh, conscious separation of the acknowledgement of what was and what we're trying to create? So I've often wondered, uh, 400 years ago, did anyone have a nightmare that the exam was scheduled for a given room and they forgot which room and they're running late? I don't think so. Probably not. No. They hadn't invented exams in rooms. Oh, thanks. Right? That would have been good. And so let's like pile up all the stuff, high school, the lunchroom, fitting in, getting an A, doing what you're told, running laps in gym. If you're defective, we're going to hold you back a year. If you behave really well, you'll get good grades and get into a famous college, right? There's this endless list of the things we were brainwashed to do. And none of them have to do with what is valuable today. None of them. No one taught us to solve interesting problems. No one taught us to lead. And those are the two things that matter. Yeah, I think of that from a relational perspective. Like one of the most important skills we need in our lifetime is to be able to communicate, to be able to effectively communicate and not just ourselves, but also listen. And those are not taught in our school. We're taught the Pythagorean theorem, which I don't think 99.9% of people use once they leave school, you know, and we step into this world where the things that we need to succeed are not the things, as you said, that are imparted upon us by our education system. Let's be careful not to pick on Pythagoras who invented the triangle because he's in the book and I got a great story about Pythagoras, which I will not tell now. But if they teach math properly, mm -hmm. it creates the platform for solving interesting problems. If they teach arithmetic and get you to memorize it, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, they have taught you nothing. Right. And- too often, you know, the, the, the kid across the street said, uh, I'm not good at math. I said, no, that's not true. You just have never had a math teacher. Mm -hmm. You've been taking arithmetic classes for years. We're really close every once in a while to giving people a platform to actually learn problem-solving skills. And then, uh-oh, there's going to be a standardized test. Better just teach them the formula. Better just teach them to memorize this thing so they can robotically go through the process, which... I mean, is the way that most of us derive our careers. Most of us, you know, I started out doing a degree in finance and then working for a pharmaceutical company only to wake up to like, why did I choose all these things? You know, you wake up at this moment of your life and you realize that you have the choice to give birth to your gift or not. And, and so terrifying to even, because we want to know what it looks like. 
You know, like I wanted to know that if I created this thing, people would like it or that it would be successful or that people wouldn't criticize it. But as you're saying, you know, that's part and parcel of the process. But that's, I mean, that's hard from a biological perspective to separate this idea. You of know? course, the good news is while it's hard, it doesn't involve heavy labor or standing outside mm-hmm. in the cold, right? <laughs> so when I, I did this book 20 years ago and it's the very first book ever written about, uh, what do they call those things these days? These kids, emojis, oh, right? Yeah. And everyone laughed and said, that's a stupid idea for a book. No one said 20 years from now, there's going to be smartphones. And 20 years from now, it will be the fastest growing, most widely adopted uh, non-letter-based alphabet in history. And nobody said, and if you're really lucky, you'll be on a podcast with Mark talking to thousands of people all over the world. All that was impossible. That's not why I wrote this book. I wrote this book because I thought it was clever, right? And you do the practice and you do the practice. I did 120 books as a book packager. And the only thing they have in common is no one knew if they were going to work or not. And one went on to sell 1,800 copies and one went on to be a, a series that was a New York Times bestseller for a year. And you can... No guarantees. You just show up. Because you're not writing them for that. You're writing them because the information is coming out of you. No, I'm writing them because I believe there are people who need to read Mm. them. Different things. If it's about the information coming out of me, it's my hobby. If I believe that there's someone in the marketplace who needs to hear what I have to say, if I'm here to serve a specific person, to cause a specific change, that is my work. Right? So I don't fly to Mexico City because I feel like it. I fly to Mexico City because there are people there who are open to me helping them get where they want to go. So who did, uh, who did you write specifically like when you were thinking about the creation of the practice, which I think I might have said the process earlier. Sorry, um, the practice. Who, did, who is like sort of the ideal um, person that you wrote that for? I would say the person who helped me keep it on track was the other part of me that needed to read it. And that's why when people say, write what you know, what they're really saying is, if you can write for the part of you that needs to read what you are writing, your compass is probably going to be pretty great. But if you want to write a kid's book, you better have the voice of a three-year-old somewhere handy in your head or otherwise, because otherwise you're going to fail. There are people who worked on legs pantyhose who were men who have never worn pantyhose in their life, but they had to develop the empathy to imagine what it's like to be a working woman on her way to work. And you get a run in your stocking and she's only got a few minutes and she's only got a few bucks. Let's put it in the supermarket. That wasn't for the person who made it, was for the person they could serve. And they got pushback over and over again because supermarket managers were men. It's like, no one needs this. <laughs> and you have to care enough to push it forward to get to the person who gets the joke. And the woman who wants to wear $80 pantyhose never buys legs, not for her. I, you know, We don't need your feedback on this. It's not for you. But there is someone who it is for. And if there isn't someone who it's for, then you just might be doing solipsism and narcissism 
I think it helps mm. to know who it's for and you can build your practice around that person and the change they are seeking. Yeah, it feels like such a fitting uh, book in these times. You know, I, I feel like a lot of your work is the is this um, invitation for us to show up and give birth to the thing and not get so caught up in the details. Like I listened to your podcast series, that's the weekend uh, event that you did. And by the way, thank you, because that was such a gift uh, oh, to be able to thanks. hear. That was 15, 15 years ago, I did a podcast. It was incredible. And I, what I loved was one, that message of like, your message isn't for everyone. That's not the reason to not start. That's actually the reason to start. You already have a market. And I remember you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, and not that you should have your weekend from 15 years ago memorized, but that all you need is a hundred people, like a hundred people who are really invested and enjoy your work. And I think we think I need a thousand, I need 2000 customers. I need this thing. And that by design becomes such a reason to never start because we're already afraid we're not going to meet a thousand people. Yeah. Well, Kevin Kelly started the whole thing with a thousand true fans, which is totally worth reading. It's two pages long. If you're a real estate broker and you can sell a hundred houses in a year, you're rich. Ding, ding, ding. Particularly in Vancouver, you only need 10. True. Yeah. Right. So it depends on what you do for a living, but the social media networks want us to feel insecure and a failure if we have less than 10 million. But if you're doing something meaningful for a group of people who need you, who would miss you if you're gone, a hundred, a thousand, not only is that enough, it's surprisingly easy to discover if you can actually be specific enough. So a friend of mine, what does she do? She organizes the papers and pays the bills for elderly people who have kids who are worried about them. That's pretty specific. Mm -hmm. She has a waiting list. Mm -hmm. Because if you just heard me say that, and you've got an 85-year-old who still wants to be independent, but could surely use that kind of support, you're like, quick, tell me her name. And if you're good at it, you don't lose any clients until they've moved on. Right. And how many clients does she need? Well, at $2,000 a year, 100 clients is a lot. Do you think for, as you were speaking to, like you wrote the book for the part of yourself that needed to read it, do you find the source of a lot of people's work or like that, that contribution, the giving that they do comes from that part of themselves that needed that teacher, like that part of themselves, like they experienced some form of suffering and went through the learning and the process. And, and that, that market is clearly available because they've gone through that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I would say almost never. Tell me more. I'm curious. The person who designed and built that bridge, is never going to drive down this road. And the mm-hmm. dentist who is filling your cavity might not have any cavities. And The veterinarian who is taking care of your dog loves dogs, but that's not their dog, right? And we can go down the list. There's this tiny little section of vulnerable, authentic social media influencers who are supposed to put on this show. You know, they usually have a wide-brimmed hat and live in a van. And that's not most people. No, Most people do the work because they can do the work. You know, if I think about... Marcel Duchamp, who I have very mixed feelings about because he stole his most important work from Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven. But once he figured out what a ready-made was, 
Joke's over for Marcel. Everything after that is just the work, right? He he got all the benefit of the ready-made 10 seconds after he invented it. Everything after that's the work. Working on something you need is a okay thing to do. But when I think of my 20 books, very few of them were written for the part of me that needed to hear it. Mm. It is true that there are three of them, four of them, where I will listen to the audiobook every year or two, because I want to hear from that old version of me mm-hmm. who had a point of view about a thing, and it's very useful. Mm-hmm. But that's not really why I write them. And, you know, make a list of the dozen voices in your life that you count on or that you appreciate, whether, you know, when Bob Dylan rolls into town and plays Lay, 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 Lay again, he's not playing it so he can hear it, right? He's just doing his job. Right. As someone is just on the birthplace of wanting to take that step, what is your advice to them? Other than mine, which would be buy the book, what would be some other advice that you would give to them? It's totally fine if people don't buy the book. Surround yourself with two or three or four people and do the work, ship the work, create the work, repeat the process, do it and do it and do it a hundred days in a row. And If after 20 days, you're exhausted, that's good. If after 40 days, you have blisters, that's good. If after 80 days, you hate it, you have my permission to quit. It's not for you. But do the practice first and then see if it's working in the outside world. Just begins by making an assertion. I believe people who are dealing with this problem will benefit if they encounter this solution. And it can be a problem you've had or a problem you haven't had. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you're bringing a spirit of open generosity to it to say, I can turn on lights and open doors. And if someone wants to walk through, that would be great. And part of that process, because you make a really eloquent point about it is, and it's a challenging one, which I inc- I really liked for the creative minds, is, is you said, there's no such thing as writer's block. This is my writer's block right here. I make it on a laser printer, laser cutter. There's no such thing as writer's block. And the reason there's no such thing as writer's block is because no one gets walker block, talker block, juggling block, uh, <laughs> eating block, cooking block. Why did we have a special thing for writer's block? Right. What we actually have is a fear of bad writing. Mm. And you're totally entitled to have a fear of bad writing. But the way you get through that thing you're called writer's block is by doing enough bad writing that some good writing slips through. Don't show anyone your bad writing. Wait till the good writing slips through ship the work. I love that. That's beautiful because that's a good call out. All your stuff has got this like gentle (laughs) call out to it. That's like, it hits you with the grace of a poem, but also like a sense of truth that you're like, oh, that's true. Because for sure, the reason I didn't start doing videos or writing was because I was afraid it would all be rejected and not be good and be criticized. Well, after talking to you and having consumed your work, it's like, that's what happens. Like, keep going keep going, keep going. And you've certainly done that and, and inspired me to do so too. And I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much. It's a much. real pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me. Of course. And um, for people listening, where can they find uh, your, your stuff? Obviously through Google, but where can they go? Yeah, Google's you? not my friend anymore, but if you type Seth into Google, you'll find my blog, 7,000 or so blog posts for free. Uh, the company I started at Kimbo is now independent of me. It's a B Corp in the public interest and the workshops there are at, at, at kimbo.com, A-K-I-M-B-O. 
And my podcast is at akimbo.link. And Alt-MBA. Right, which is part of Akimbo. The Alt-MBA is the flagship at Akimbo. It's a 30-day workshop that will change your mind. Yeah, what you've done with that is incredible. As soon as I read about it when you first started it, I was like, yep, this is this is education that matters. Um, so thank you. I really appreciate your time and, and uh, I'll make sure that everyone gets over there and everyone go buy your book. That's what I know you don't need them to, but I'm like, it's that good. I read it and I'm like, this is incredible. It's exactly what I needed. Thank you, Mark. Here's to justice. Here's to peace of mind. Keep making the ruckus. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love. 